Well, we are continuing our journey. Why are we here? And we're looking at fellowship once again. And uh, I know that there's, looking out amongst us, I know that there's a significant number of us that are gathered together today who at some point in time have had the joyful process in their life of physical therapy. Uh, just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you can, if you've had physical therapy, okay? Uh, yeah, that's, what, that's about what I thought, most of us. And for some of you, it may have come after surgery like it happened with me. For some of you, it may have been uh, because of uh, a fall, an injury of some sort. Uh, but it doesn't matter how you got there. Most of us have had therapy. And, and let's be real honest. Isn't it the worst? I mean, it's absolutely horrible. The pain, the distress, the discomfort. I believe you have to have a really strong ego to be a physical therapist. Because nobody likes you. Nobody wants to come see you. But in reality, when you get through it, the honesty is we do. We do. Because when the healing comes, when the strengthening follows that all that painful effort, we come to a place of knowing and appreciating that we might not have made it through this battle if it weren't for people who passively worked our muscles and our joints for us until we came to a place where we could do it on our own. But there isn't a whole lot of leeway here. Again, therapy hurts. But the alternative is far, far worse. I've known quite a few folks through 43 years of ministry who refused to do their therapy. Uh, It was just too painful. They didn't want to go through the process. And a few of them actually wound up bedridden when the prognosis had been much better had they done the work. The truth is, sometimes we simply need somebody else to at least start the hard work for us that we can't do on our own. Today's text, we're going to look at some therapy that Paul prescribed. I don't want to get too carried away with that. It's certainly not physical therapy, but it's spiritual therapy that is desperately needed in the body of Christ in the sense of fellowship. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 11. And I encourage you, Sometime this week, get aside and get your Bible out and read both letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Um, It won't take you very long. They're not terribly long books. Uh, But you kind of get an idea of what was going on, why Paul had to write this. Uh, I believe this is something we need to hear today. And I'm already going to let you know the theme of fellowship. There's some commonalities in everything we've been looking at. So just be prepared for that. But as we get ready to hear the word of the Lord together, would you stand? And just keep in mind, Paul is writing this to people he really loved. He started the church in Thessalonica at great peril to himself. You may remember from the book of Acts, just when everything started getting good, he got run out of town. He loved them, he cared for them, and he had a word for them That is, here nearly 2,000 years later, God's word for us today. 
So open up your hearts to hear the word. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, and just a little this word asleep means dead. And I'll explain why he had to say that in a minute. Whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another And build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In this passage of scripture, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he is telling them their job, their purpose, their calling in the body of Christ is to strengthen one another. You are to strengthen one another. And so here we are again, 2,000 years removed from the context in which Paul wrote, we still find the reality we need to help each other. We need each other's help. Now, why? I mean, after all, we're professing Christians. God is our Lord, our Savior. Isn't it enough that we have God in times of trouble? Well, obviously, He gives us strength. But our Father knew our characteristics. He knew who we are and will always be. So God said, you know what? You need more than just the knowledge of me. You need each other. This passage is brilliantly clear about that. And so today we're going to take a look at this text and we're going to discover the reasons we need each other. Why is it? That with God on our side, we still need the connection of brothers and sisters in Christ. And it becomes very clear as we look at what Paul was telling this church. And we're going to take the very first reason. I don't mean it to sound cruel. And I don't mean it to sound that we are just horrible, awful people. But the truth is, sometimes we need help remembering who we are. I'm not talking about dementia. I'm not talking about our forgetfulness. We need to be reminded who we are. And Paul understood that. Remember, he led these people to Christ. He established their church. He is in contact with them, trying to help them during their time of difficulty. He knows them. He loves them. He cares for them. And he still is saying, you need to remember some stuff. You need to remember something. So Paul was led by the very Spirit of God to remind this church to live as children of the light. Folks, he led them to Christ. He knows that they know the Lord. And yet he doesn't hesitate to say, remember that. You are not children of darkness. You are not children of the night. You are children of the light. You are sons of God. God and daughters of God, you are believers in Christ and you need 
to understand that, you need to grab hold of that. Now, let me just give you the background. Paul is writing in this in the context of the second coming of Christ. And he will address the second coming both in First and Second Thessalonians. But he's just got through telling them that Jesus is coming back. He also reminded them because they they were afraid, apparently. They were afraid that the people they loved who had died in Christ before his return somehow were going to miss out on something. But he wants them to know that's not the case. They are living in light of the second coming. He says Jesus is coming back, and that should have an effect on the way you live. We are waiting for the light to shine. We are waiting for it to burst into this world in all of its power and all of its glory. And while we are waiting, you need to be ready. You need to be what you are in Christ. You need to be children of the light. He's encouraging them both to be waiting. And Jesus says, we need to wait and be ready. We don't know what time Lord is coming back. He even says, In the gospel, I don't. The Son of Man doesn't even know when the date is. So be ready. Don't be caught unawares. Don't be caught asleep. Don't be caught sleeping on your guard duty. Be watching, be looking, be living. And so their lives should reflect that godliness. And they needed to be moving farther and farther away from the world's influences. Thomas Constable has pointed out beautifully that Christians live in a different sphere of life from non-Christians. He's not saying we're superior, but it's a reality. He says it is as different as day and night. Christians are sons of light. They are also sons of the day, which means we have illumination. What Paul is saying, we walk in light. We know the warmth the joy, the growth that comes from being in the light. And he says, that's the way you need to live. You need to live what you're saying you believe. Walk as children of day and walk as children of the light. And this is where where we can get sidetracked. The reality is we can sometimes forget that following Christ should have a practical impact on our lives. If I really am trusting Christ, and I really do believe, and every week I'm getting people asking me, is this a sign of the end? Is it close? Well, I believe it will happen within my lifetime, but so has every generation of Christian. So I need to be ready, and I need to be paying attention, but the reality is sometimes we forget Please forgive me. But our desire to wait on Christ's return, I fully understand the heart that says, God, would you just please draw to a close? Just finish it. I understand that. But folks, we shouldn't be looking for Christ just so we get saved from all the bad stuff of this world. We should be looking for Christ because it makes a difference who we are. Warren Wearsby... (laughs) talked about a discussion that needed to be heard in my family. He talks about the difference between morning people and evening people. I'm not going to ask for hands which of which. I don't want to start a family fight today. But he said, some people are wide awake before the alarm clock rings. 
They hit the floor running and never have to yawn or throw cold water in their face. And then he says, and some of you will relate, others like me wake up slowly. First one eye, then the other, and then gradually shift gears as they move into the day. And then Wearsby in his beautiful way makes this point. When it comes to the return of the Lord, we all must be morning people, awake, alert, sober, and ready for the dawning of that wonderful new day. I'm looking. I, I remember there was a song that gospel groups sang a lot when I was a kid. Lift up your heads, your redemption draweth nigh. Folks, we need to be waiting and we need to be ready. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Ready for Christ's return. Ready for him to show up. Benjamin Chaplin asks the question, but what does that look like? And he points out, Paul tells us rather straightforwardly. What will our lives look like if we are really ready, waiting for Christ? They will be lives that are lived in faith, in love, and in hope. In other words, if we're ready... If we're where we should be, we're becoming more and more and more like our Savior. Folks, I'm constantly bombarded with the newest, the newest message, the newest sign, and everybody's excited. Give us something new, fresh, exciting. Tell me what day. What I even had a friend who said, Jesus didn't say we wouldn't know what year he was coming back. He just said we wouldn't know the day and the hour. Always looking for something new. Well, folks, Paul is saying what we need is to be reminded of who we are right now living for him. And so we should really, as Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord, we should embrace helping each other remain true to our calling as children of the light. That's what you and I are called to do. Help each other. Now, I believe we begin by praying, God, make me the person you want me to be. Lord, move into my life and make me the man I was saved, redeemed to be, called to be. Help me to follow you, to love you, to serve you. Help my life to be marked by faith, hope, and love. But it's not just about me. Salvation may be personal, but it is not private. I need to be involved in your lives. You need to be involved with mine. Helping each other. When we see a brother and sister losing sight, losing attention, we gently try to bring them back. Remember who you are. You're a child of God. You're born of the King. You're a child of the light. Let your life reflect that. When people see you, may they see the light of Jesus In your life. I think that's the reason Jesus said both, I am the light and you are the light. We reflect his light. That's what we're called to do. That's the connection of fellowship. When I've lost my way, I have brothers and sisters in my life who know how to look me in the eye and tell me what I need to hear. We need that from each other. And one of the reasons we can get so distracted is connected to the next reason 
we need to help each other. Because the reality is, my friends, sometimes we need help when we are faced with discouragement. This isn't the first time I've talked about this by any, any measurement. But we need help because of discouragement. When we just feel like we can't go on. When things are beyond our control and we just begin to hurt. And Paul tells his church something important. Paul urged the Thessalonians to bring comfort to one another. And that idea of comfort is the basic sense behind the word encouragement. One particular uh, uh, lexicon of the Greek New Testament that is focused on what is the sense of this meaning, what does it mean overall, translates encourage as to comfort, to alleviate sorrow or distress, to give emotional strength to. That's a beautiful idea, isn't it? We are here to help each other through times of sorrow, to through times of distress, to actually help with the emotion of pain that comes when life doesn't work out the way we want it. And Paul knew the Thessalonians needed that kind of comfort. I've told you, read First and Second Thessalonians. When you do, you will find out over and again this church was being bombarded with different fears. Fears that their loved ones who were dead were somehow gone. Fears that they might have missed the second coming of Christ themselves. Fears that overwhelmed them. And Paul is having to go back and comfort them and give them hope and remind them of everything he's told them. They needed to find the comfort that was rightfully theirs as children of God. Do you recall that the word of our Lord calls our God the God of all comfort? So if we are sons and daughters of God, that means we are supposed to be about comforting. And Paul knew that this church, if they would just remember what they knew, if they would just embrace the truth that had come to them in Christ, he knew that they could comfort each other. It didn't just have to be Paul needs to write a letter every six months, so we'll make it. They were supposed to be comforting each other because together they would find the comfort. Together, they would find the encouragement to not give up, to not run away and hide, to keep pushing forward together. And when Jesus tells us, love one another as I have loved you, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, how can we know that we are loving that kind of love? Well, this text gives us proof. You see, our willingness to walk through the valley of shadow together indicates we have learned to love one another. When we have learned how to walk through the pain together, you see, I have just a basic belief as a human being even before I'm a child of God, just talk about my humanity. I just really believe no human being should ever have to face the pain of life on their own. Created in the image of God, people should care about each other. 
I mean, no, they don't always. But you and I have a calling that goes beyond our humanity, don't we? We have a calling as children of the living God. And God himself gives us this mandate of love. And the way I show I'm willing to love you, the way you show you're willing to love me, am I willing to walk with you in your pain? Anton Chekhov, the Russian author, wrote a very powerful, moving, painful short story entitled Misery. It's also known by the name Lament. But it tells the story of Iona Potapov, He is a Russian sleigh driver. In the time frame, think of cabbie. He's a cab driver, but with a sleigh in the middle of winter. And as we meet him in the middle of the winter, waiting where people will come to get their rides, he is described as being all white, like a phantom. He is doubled over. We quickly learn he is in emotional pain. He has just recently lost his son to illness. And as he begins his journey that night, he picks up a wealthy man. And in the course of the ride, he tries to tell the man, my son died this week. The wealthy man doesn't care. He's too busy. He's too full of himself. He yells at Iona to pay attention to how you're driving and leave me alone, essentially. And he falls asleep at the back of the sleigh till he arrives at his destination. Then Potapov picks up three young men, and they are full of themselves. They are full of all the carousing, laughter, joking that can happen among young people. And being around a group of young people, for just a moment, Chekhov suggests, it lifts Potapov's loneliness ever so slightly. But then he tells these men, my son died this week. And they act with indifference. Again, they're busy partying. They're having fun. They don't want to deal with this. So they move from indifference to disdain. Everybody has to die sooner or later. And he drives on. After he le- lets them go, he realizes he hasn't even made enough money. They even paid him cheaply, those boys. He doesn't even have enough money to buy oats for his horse when he gets back to the barn. He knows he needs to get other rides. He just can't do it. The loneliness is weighting him down. So he goes back to the barn where other drivers are waiting. He goes into a little pub beside the barn and he talks to people no one there wants to hear either. He offers a glass of water to a young driver that just came in who is ready to drink and then sits down and as he begins his story, the guy falls asleep. No one is listening. And so finally, he is overwhelmed. Just like the young man was thirsty, Potapov is thirsty for speech. He wants to tell somebody. He wants to talk properly about the death of his son. He wants to tell how his son had taken ill, how he suffered, what he said before he died, how he died. He wants to describe the funeral and how he went to the funeral and how he went to the hospital to get his son's clothes. He still has his daughter, Anisia, in the country, and he wants to talk about her too. Yes, he has plenty to talk about right now. The checkoff has made it clear no one cares. No one cares. 
And so finally he goes out to the barn to check on his horse. And Chekhov ends his story. He puts on his coat and goes to the stables where his mare is standing. He thinks about oats, about hay, about the weather. He cannot think about his son when he is alone. To talk about him with someone is possible, but to think of him and picture him is insufferable anguish. Are you munching? Ion asks his mare, seeing her shiny eyes. There, munch away, munch away. Since we've not earned enough for oats, we will eat hay. I've grown too old to drive. My son ought to be driving, not I. He was a real cabman. He ought to have lived. He's silent for a moment, and then he says, That's how it is, old girl. Kuzma Inonich is gone. He said goodbye to me. He went and died for no reason. How suppose you had a little colt, and you were own mother to that little colt, and all at once that same little colt went and died. You'd be sorry, wouldn't you? The little mare munches, listens, and breathes on her master's hands. Iona is carried away and tells her all about it. Not a single human being encounter in this story cares. They don't want to listen. They don't want to be involved. They turn their hearts away from a person hurting. May that never be said of us as the children of the living God. Now, I know that offering comfort to one another in time of distress can move us away from our own comfort level. We're afraid we won't know what to say. We don't know how to alleviate their pain. We don't know what to do. Well, the truth is, folks, we will never be able to alleviate someone else's pain completely. But what we can do Encourage each other with the truth of God's word. Remind them that the word tells us, Jesus promised, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Lo, I'm with you till the very end of the age. We can remind them that the word of God says that there is possible a peace that passes understanding. We can sit with each other. Not necessarily giving profound words of wisdom. I will remind you once more, and I've done it before, Job's friends were wonderful comforters for seven days when they sit with him and keep their mouths shut. It's when they begin to talk, they torment their friend. Sometimes we can just sit with somebody. Sometimes we can pray together, we can sing together, we can weep together joining in their pain. The thing is, you and I, as children of God, we need to be eagerly involved in helping each other in times of discouragement. We need this in our lives. Each of us, Paul says, as a whole, one, you, all of you as a whole encourage one another. But what that means, we must be willing to make a commitment to be involved within our Christian family. That means we need to find ways to enter into each other's lives through meaningful connections. And I'm about to say something you might not ever have thought me saying, but folks, I believe even texting, as much as I 
have problems with it. Texting can be a meaningful connection when you're following the Spirit's drive and, and move and you think about someone and just send a simple word, I'm thinking about you and I love you. A phone call. A, a time of prayer together. What it means for us to understand this call, this therapy, and would you please notice Paul is saying all of us are the therapists. We are all the ones who are supposed to be helping people when they can't make it on their own. We must actually be willing to share the pain. Because we need to see those hearts whose hands are dropped, whose knees are giving away, who just can't find the way. We need to walk alongside them and hold them up and encourage them. With that, we come to our final reason. The final reason that there are people in this room will understand the fact most of us are old enough. We've already faced this. Folks, the truth is, sometimes we need help when we've been weakened by life's battles. Sometimes our strength has played out. Because life has hurt so badly. One of the things I absolutely love about reading the Apostle Paul is that he's very honest. You read Paul carefully and you will not find any sugar-coated, pablum kind of Bible truth. You will not find Paul saying, just trust in Jesus and you will have a wonderful life full of laughter and melody and everything will go every way it's supposed to go. Paul doesn't do that. By the way, you know who else didn't do that? Jesus. I'm overwhelmed at times. I'm reading the words of my master and he seems really hard trying to talk people out of following him, doesn't he? You can't follow me if you're going to put your hand to the, paw, the, the plow and turn them away. You can't follow me unless you're willing to go to the very end to die with me if need be. And Paul doesn't say the Christian life is all sunshine and roses. No, Paul clearly knew that life in Christ could be a battle. Now, why would he know that? Well, maybe because he was run out of town at Thessalonica. Maybe because he was stoned at Lystra. Maybe it was because he was accused of all sorts of lies and deceptions trying to get people to turn away from him. Maybe it will be because ultimately he will be in a Roman prison waiting his death. But Paul knew life as a Christian could be a battle. The moment you accept, the moment you receive Christ, the moment you have faith and confess him as Lord and Savior, you open yourself up to the battle. And so he calls the Thessalonians, put on your spiritual armor. 
This is an image he uses elsewhere, most notably Ephesians 6, where he goes into a really detailed description of the full armor of God. Here he leaves it to a breastplate and a helmet. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. Put on the helmet of hope of salvation. But he's telling them, put on armor. I don't mean to be oversimplifying, but folks, why would you put on armor if there's not a battle? If everything's going to be easy, why do you need to put a flak jacket on? It does, that doesn't make sense. So Paul says, put your armor on, be ready for the battle. But, but please notice he does even more than that. After he tells him, put on the armor, he tells, and you need to be building each other up. That word edification, we don't use it much. Mostly it's people like me who are using it in sermons or in Bible studies. Edification, to build up. And Leon Morris wrote out, Paul uses this term a lot. And it's used a lot in the Bible elsewhere. At times, it's just talking about building a building. When Jesus said the wise man built his house on a rock, he uses this word of edification. He built it up. When Jesus said, this is, I'm going to build my church upon this rock, he uses the idea of building up. In the book of Acts, it's used in the ninth chapter to describe the growth of the church. As the church grows, it is being built up. But Morris points out when Paul uses the word, both the verb and the nouns that spring off of that verb, for Paul, it is always about Building someone up. Edifying someone. That's always the message of Paul. And one Greek English lexicon paraphrases it wonderfully. To increase the potential of someone with the focus of the process involved. To strengthen. To make more able. To build up. Did you know that's what you're here for? We are here to help each other reach the potential that we have in Christ. We are here to strengthen, to make someone more able to follow the Lord. We are here to build them up. And Vine, W.E. Vine said, uh, it promotes, the idea promotes spiritual growth, development of character, believers, either by teaching or example. Our job, Paul says is to help each other move forward in their life with Christ. When they're weak, when they've been battered down, and when they need the armor, we need to be alongside of them, helping them along the way. And then Paul does something beautiful. Paul says, just like you're doing. At the end of verse 11, build each other up just like you're doing. Why would Paul tell them, do something that you're already doing? Because he knows people. What he is really saying, build each other up like you're doing and be sure you never stop. Constantly build each other up. There's no quota, folks. Some of you remember the old... uh, six-point thing that you checked out on your offering envelopes. 
Read your Bible daily, check. Brought your Bible to church, check. Studied the lesson, check. Remember all those things? And when I checked them off as a kid, I thought, all right, brownie points. I didn't really understand why I was checking them off. There is no quota. If you're alive, and I'm assuming you are since you're listening to me, you are still being called upon to build each other up. None of us in this room can ever say, I've done my duty. It's up to somebody else next. I was reading uh, Tony Evans' book, Wabat, and bless his heart, he reminded me, I love Evans for a lot of reasons, but he reminded me one of the most exciting moments on TV I ever saw in my life. It happened in the Olympics, and Rachel and I had the joy of watching this together, and we were beside ourselves. We were hollering at the TV. We were hooping and jumping up and down. Devorah Myers wrote an article entitled Magnificent Seven Oral History 1996 Olympic Gymnastics. And she opens her article with what sets the stage of what an important moment is about to play out in front of us. She said it's the Olympic women's gymnastics final, and for the first time in history, the U.S., Shannon Miller, Dominic Mosino, Dominic Dawes, Carrie Strug, Amy Chow, Amanda Borden, and J.C. Phelps has a shot at winning team gold. It had never happened before. And right now, we are watching the broadcast. And we are so excited because it's come down to the final event, the final moment. And at that moment, Carrie Strug, an amazing gymnast, is carrying the weight of Olympic gold on her shoulder for her team. All she has to do All she has to do is a really good vault, which was her specialty. This was her event. She has to score a 9.430 in order for Americans to win the gold. And everybody's waiting, excited about what's going to happen. And she does her first vault, and she falls. Some of you remember it. Some of you may watch this. She hit and did not stick the landing and fell backwards. And there's a shot panning to her parents and their reaction. And they're absolutely horrified for their daughter. She gets up and starts limping back to the starting place. And now all of a sudden, the hope is being dashed. Strug actually had a bad ankle before the games began and got treatment and it looked like everything was going to be okay, but she's limping back. She fell on her first vault. She did not get the score her team needed to win. And so she's limping back. It looks pretty much like it's over with. In fact, one announcer said that she shouldn't even try for the second vault because she might seriously injure herself. But she still had one more jump. If you're familiar, uh, each Each contestant, each Olympian gets two vaults. The lower scores just drop. She has one more jump, one more moment. And she expressed later she felt like giving up. But her coach, Bella Caroli, some of you remember Coach Bella. She sees him, and he is, in his thick Romanian accent, calling out to Carrie, You can do it, Carrie! You can do it. I believe in you. You can do it. 
the Myers article written 20 years after the fact. Strug said, I just looked for Bella at Bella for those words that everybody knows now you can do it, Strug recalls. And then she says, all these years later now that I'm a mom, I'm like, really? That's all you thought of? And then moms, you will understand this. She said, that's what I'm telling my four-year-old little boy when he's playing t-ball. You can do it. Come on, honey, you can do it. And that's what he gives her. But Meyer said, Carrie Strug acknowledged the simplicity of the message was what she needed. She didn't need correction. She didn't need Bella telling her how to do the vault. She had done the training. She knew what she was supposed to do. She didn't need a tongue lashing for everything she did wrong in the prior vault. Although she does admit that through the years, she's played it over and over and again in her mind. What happened? What she needed, Myers wrote, was something actionable. And she hears the words, you can do it. After the vault, Strug told uh, an interviewer that all she could do to keep going was keep her eyes on the coach. He kept her from focusing on her ankle. And this young lady who was really hurting had an encourager who said, I believe in you. And she found the strength from that encouragement that she didn't have. Even with the limp, she takes off running and everybody's holding their breath now. Thankfully, it's not a long event. Everybody's just, what's going to happen? She did the flip on the vault. Remember, all she has to do is nail the landing in order to win. She had to try to do this with an ankle that was injured. But with her coach encouraging her, she did the impossible. She stuck the landing. And folks, for just a brief moment, she was on both legs. And as she threw her arms up to show the vault was over, she lifted her pained leg. She made it, and as soon as everyone knew it's over, she fell to the mat in excruciating pain. She later said she couldn't move her legs. She's pulling herself by her arms to the end of the mat when the medical help come and grab hold of her. She needed 9.430. She got a 9.72. And when it came time to go to the the platform to receive the goal, and this was one of the most, one of the most daddy moments there are. Coach Bella carried her to the platform. And that one word of encouragement determined her performance. What does this mean for us? This idea, that encouragement, that will give somebody the strength to go on, that encouragement will... Help somebody continue the fight. What does it mean? Folks, every member of the church has a responsibility to help other members grow. I need you to hear that. Every member of the church has a responsibility to help other members grow. You see, this whole idea of edification, of building up, this doesn't belong to people like me. Pastors aren't the only ones who are supposed to encourage. Now, I hope I do encourage you. And I hope I do give you uh, words of strength when you're needing them. I pray that's true, but it doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the deacons. It doesn't belong to Sunday school 
uh, leaders. It doesn't belong to any one group. It belongs to every one of us. And this is important. I need you to really hear this. Robert Thomas has pointed out uh, when Paul says, encourage one another, and he says, build each other up. Those two phrases, one another, and build each other, one another, each other, they're kind of synonyms. They basically mean the same thing, but there is a difference. Because the phrase each other has a stronger individualizing side to it. In other words, the focus is not about what all of you are to do together. The focus is what should each one of you do. It's meddling time. If you look at the phrase translated each other, the original language, heiston henna, you would find, and you try to translate it as literally as you can, it will come off very wooden. It'll sound strange to your ears. So you want to hear what it literally says? The one, the one. That's what it says. The one, the one, building up. R.C.H. Linsky paraphrased it, individual is to build up individual. The focus we need to hear today, you need to hear as well as I, because while I say it's not my job, I can't excuse myself. Well, that's something the lay people are supposed to do. Each one of us are being called to do this. Each one is to help each one be built up. Are you catching what I'm saying? Are you getting it? You could insert your name here. Danny, build Zach up. Robbie, build Bill up. Each one is to help each one. That means every person, if you hear my voice today, whether here live, whether you're watching on video live, or you will hear it at a later point, every person, if you name the name of Jesus Christ, if you call him Lord and Savior, you have a responsibility in the body of Christ of building each other up. And that's exciting to me. Because see, if it's only the pastor doing it, then you've got one person trying to build up a whole congregation. And that's not meant to happen. Each one of us. What Paul is letting us know, if we're willing to listen, we need to, we, each one of us, need to gently help others to become all they can be in Christ. So I see a brother or sister who's about to give way. I see them burdened under. I see they can't make it. I see the pain in their eyes. I know they're hurting, and I know it. God is saying, do something about it. Build them up. This can happen through individual commitments of accountability. Look, I love you and I trust you. I've come to know you really well. And there's some areas in my life I need help with. And I want you to walk with me and help me. It can happen through a joint Bible study that doesn't even have to be face-to-face. You don't have to go to Starbucks to get coffee or or find a little room at the church. You can also be involved in one-on-one Bible studies. Just you're all, A bunch of you are reading the, the Bible through this year. If you've made that commitment, then find somebody. When God speaks to your heart, call somebody up. Did you read today's passage? Man, God spoke to my heart. And you begin talking 
and building each other up. It can happen through prayer commitments to one another. On such and such day, I will be praying for you. However it comes together, the stark reality is we need each other to build the other up. We need each other. Robert Morgan wrote about a very powerful testimony that first was published in Guy Post magazine about Donald Vereen. He was from Oceanside, California, and he served as a hospital corpsman during the invasion of Guam during World War II. And on their way onto the shore, his boat hit a coral reef and was going to sink. So the commanding officer said, everybody off the ship. And when he dove in, he had full packs, but not just the normal packs of everything else, but also his medical kit. So he had rifle, medical kit, uh, his canteen, his boots, everything's just pulling him down, and he starts to sink like a rock. He makes his way up to the top and gets grasp of air, but immediately starts sinking together. He's trying to take his boots off, but that just exhausts him. And he knows, I'm about to drown. So he swims and gets to the top one more time, gets a breath of air, and then he sees somebody right next to him thrashing in the water, and he just lurches and grabs hold. And it's enough to keep him from going down one more time. He stayed afloat until the rescue ship came and got him. But Varen felt guilty because he drowned a drown- and grabbed hold of a drowning man to save himself. So he never told anybody about the story. Six months later, he said he was on shore leave when he sees a, a guy in uniform waving his arm and he walks over to him. And the man introduces him to his friends. He's eating and says, hey, this is my buddy. He saved my life. He said, what are you talking about? Don't you remember? We were in Guam and we we're making shore and, and, and I was drowning and he grabbed hold of me and kept me afloat. He saved my life. Two drowning men No hope. Without probably much of the thought of saving the other, grab hold and live. What you need to understand, what we need to really get, what we need at one time or other, we will need to hold each other up. Sooner or later, we'll need help. And as we've seen today, sometimes it's because we've forgotten who we are. We've gotten so distracted, we're forgetting Jesus expects us to live for him. Lives that honor him. Sometimes we need help because we're just discouraged. Nothing is going together the way we think it should be. And we're falling into a dark place. Sometimes we need help. Because we're just too weak to go on. So I'm asking you today, will you join me? Will you join me in a choice today? A choice that by God's grace, he will give us the wisdom, the ability, the heart to stand together. To give help. One to another. To give help to each other. Will you join me in that choice? Will you ask God, help me become the person you want me to be? And God, help me help others find their place.